It's time now for the Sports Objective Podcast. No talking heads, just guys who love sports. Here's Dave Richmond. Welcome into the Sports Objective Podcast, episode 314. I'm Bubba Rosenbaum, and we have a baseball-heavy episode for you today. Uh, we caught up a couple days ago with Chip Carey. Of course, that Carey name is one that resonates throughout the game, has been associated with it for 75-plus seasons now. And you think of Harry Carey, of course, a larger-than-life personality with the Chicago Cubs. And prior to his time with the Cubs, of course, spent years with the St. Louis Cardinals as well. And um, in addition to Harry, I think of Skip. Uh, Skip had about a 30-year association with the Atlanta Braves on TBS. When I think back to my childhood, I think of... I think of not only Harry calling the action for the Cubs and tuning in on WGN um, a lot of afternoons between April and September to hear Harry calling the action and then singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game as he always did in the middle of the 7th. Um, I also think about Skip Carey uh, describing the action for the Atlanta Braves, uh, particularly throughout the 1990s. The Braves were um, really the team of that decade, they did just win that one World Series, but they were winning the division year in, year out. And you think about Skip Carey teaming up with Joe Simpson, Don Sutton, uh, also Pete Van Weeren, um, to name some of those uh, co-hosts or co-broadcast partners uh, that Skip Carey had. But tremendous show. Uh, we're going to dive into a number of topics with Chip. Uh, he is a graduate of the University of Georgia, so there toward the tail end of this conversation, we'll talk a little uh, SEC football and what Kirby Smart has going on in Athens. So that is headed your way here in just a couple minutes. Uh, but before that, uh, just some other news and notes on the East Carolina front. And the Pirates received their second commitment here recently um, from James Wright, a safety out of the state of South Carolina. He's a top 20 or top 25 overall recruit in the uh, Palmetto State. So James Wright has committed to the Pirates. 6'1", 195 safety again. He also played some wide receiver and wildcat quarterback in high school. And uh, will hopefully be doing so assuming they're able to play this fall. Uh, Jalen Clyatt, uh, he was another safety, uh, maybe projects to playing a backer on the college level, but he's out of Maryland. He had committed to the Pirates probably three or four weeks back now. So those are the two commitments that Mike Houston and this staff have thus far, uh, have been building some excellent relationships, but uh, just two commitments, and that's not surprising. Uh, Coach Houston predicted as much with the dead period now being extended all the way up through the end of July. So that means, um, for those of you who may not be as familiar with that term, that that means that all of the communication has to occur electronically via email, FaceTime, Zoom, etc. Student-athletes cannot be coming to campus, and coaches cannot be going to the student-athletes. So that is um, a little update there on the Pirate football recruiting front. Uh, also, as far as some of our upcoming content, uh, we will have Joe Dooley and Stephen Igo on the program here in the next couple of days. Uh, last night, we caught up with Adam Gold of 99.9 The Fan, statewide syndicated program, uh, 
filling that 12 to 3 time slot every weekday where David Glenn had been previously. And uh, we also caught up with Big E, Eric Graham. Uh, he was with us for nearly an hour on talking East Carolina football as we approach the 2020 season. Uh, some other guests that we have headed your way, uh, we hope to have Eric Backich and Cliff Godwin on the program. Of course, Coach Backich is now the head coach up at the University of Michigan, nearly led the Wolverines to a uh, national title here last season. But uh, Eric Backich of the Michigan Wolverines will join us. And to talk, um, really a proposal that he and some other coaches had toward, um, moving the college baseball season back a month or a little over a month, uh, where it would be starting in mid to late March and uh, not be finishing up to mid to late July, which would certainly benefit northern teams like Michigan. But, uh, we hope to have Eric and in addition to Eric, Coach Cliff Godwin on the program to discuss that here in the coming days. And then uh, last but certainly not least, we plan on catching up with an East Carolina alum, certainly no stranger to Pirate Nation, and a guy who is the deputy AD down at Winthrop University in Rock Hill, South Carolina, Hank Harewood. Hank will be uh, joining the program here in the next week or two. So a lot of excellent content headed your way. And um, one last thing before we dive into that interview with Chip Carey uh, here in the last couple days, it was announced by App State Director of Athletics Doug Gillen that the Mountaineers will be dropping three sports. Um, they will be cutting men's indoor track, men's soccer, and men's tennis from the sports that they offer in Boone. So right now, uh, let's talk a little baseball and a few other topics. And let's go to that conversation with the longtime television announcer of the Atlanta Braves, Chip Carey. Well, it's been a tough reason for many reasons for sports. One of them is, of course, play-by-play announcers in baseball, and Bubba, a huge honor to have this guy on with us. Absolutely, Dave. When you think of Major League Baseball and the broadcasting business, you certainly think of this family's name. Very excited right now to have with us Chip Carey. Hey, guys. How are you? Good. Glad to have you on. Certainly, uh, I'd love to spend some time talking to you, especially uh, would love to be talking about baseball and Atlanta Braves and maybe your family, obviously, but... uh, well, your dad and granddad, but uh, this particular case, no baseball. It's been very surreal, and I guess the best way to start the interview is, how are you doing? Uh, normally, you would be very busy right now. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I would have been flying back from San Diego for my daughter's high school, or my daughter's college graduation, I should say, getting ready for another series back in Atlanta, then going back to the West Coast on wow. a Wednesday or Thursday of this week. But yeah, it's weird. It's It's sad. It's strange. Uh, it's certainly very different. Uh, those of us who are used to the circadian rhythm of a baseball season starting up in, uh, you know, February when pitchers and catchers report and then ending sometime in late October with the World Series and a champion being crowned, uh, we're used to that. And for those of us who aren't able to do that, uh, it's, it's, you know, been really, really tough. Not having a paycheck is really tough. Not seeing the games and working with our friends is tough. Uh, but obviously we understand uh, our, our, our sports uh, place in society and where we rank. There's far bigger issues in the country and the world than whether or not uh, Bryce Harper gets a 2-2 slider or a 2-2 ball <laughs> around the homers, Ronald Acuna hits, et cetera. And we're all cognizant of that. Uh, but make no mistake, I think those of us who work in the game and love the game and know what uh, place baseball has in our society believes that when we come back, if we come back in 2020, it'll be a sign that we're getting back to normal. And I think everybody understands and realizes that. 
Uh, hopefully the owners and players understand and realize that. And uh, as I've said so many times before, hopefully in the next week or 10 days, we'll uh, have an agreement between those two parties that will ensure that baseball will start sometime in July and we can get uh, on with 2020 and crown a champion and then look ahead to a full season in 2021 and hopefully many years beyond that as well. If it comes back in July, which is what a lot of people are speculating, is it still looking like no fans? Do you think they'll gradually allow fans in at a diminished capacity or just have to wait and see? Uh, I think we'll have to wait and see. Obviously, uh, baseball wants to be sensitive to what the local health officials are saying, what the national health officials are saying. I will say this, that looking at the games in Korea and and, uh, Taiwan, there are fans in the stands. I know that some of the football conferences are talking about having fans in the stands when college football season starts. The NFL has set their plan, uh, barring uh, you know a, a, a dire recommendation from health officials, is to have their stadiums filled with people in August and September. So I would guess out of an abundance of caution, should we play, the stands will be empty to start. But if, uh, if we're to believe what people are saying, that sunshine and vitamin D helps uh, eliminate the virus and, and kills it on surfaces, uh, I would think that playing baseball outside in an open environment with fans and attendance would be a, a great thing. But, look, there, there are huge hurdles that have to be overcome with regards to that, and far bigger brains than I uh, are probably working on that. I just know how important the fans are to the game, how important they are for the people who do our craft. Uh, we do it for the fans, and without them, it'll be eerie, it'll be strange. Uh, but the first step, I think, obviously, is to get games started, and then hopefully as things percolate along, uh, we can open up the gates and have people participate and, and have the, a fuller stadium experience of what I think we've seen, in, as I've said, overseas in Korea and Taiwan. Yeah, before we talk more about uh, you and your family's long association with the game of baseball, um, I know recently, uh, here about three weeks ago, Jeff Schultz with The Athletic did an excellent story just talking about how this downtime has allowed you uh, some emotional healing, so to speak, and spending more time with your family, the opportunity to, to – um, Homeschool your son uh, with the e-learning that's going on. Uh, play some wiffle ball in the backyard. Those sorts right. of things. So, so just talk about that opportunity um, to kind of refocus some things. Yeah, well, look, uh, you know, we have great jobs. Uh, they're jobs that, for whatever reason, people assign a whole lot of importance to. Uh, we're on TV, and people think, you know, hey, we want to do this and be famous. Nothing could be further from the truth. It just comes with the territory. Uh, you know, my job is no more special than what you guys do for a living or someone whose son is a third-generation lawyer or plumber or a butcher or a grocery store owner or, or a sanitation worker. Uh, we just happen to have a cool job where we get to talk about sports and the like. Uh, but, you know, as, as uh, people have ascribed importance to what we do, as I said earlier, what we do is so unimportant compared to what our families go through. Uh, my wife is the MVP of our family. Uh, she and I have been married 24 years, and uh, we've been together for half of those 24 because I'm on, on the road with the baseball team uh, for half of the season. Uh, I have a great deal of guilt with my four children that I've been around them for half of their lives because, again, the baseball schedule gets in the way of marriage and life and everything else. Uh, but that said, it affords us an opportunity to live a lifestyle that I never could have dreamed of when I was a, a kid growing up in a divorced home uh, in St. Louis, Missouri. And yes, you're right, this time to be home in a beautiful part of the world where I live in Florida, uh, this time of year, I've never done that before. Never have had Memorial Day at home with my family before. Uh, we'll be able to celebrate my wife's birthday in my hometown where I live for the first time since Christ, we were in our fourth and fifth year of marriage. So uh, all of those things are really blessings in a way. And uh, as stir-crazy as I think all of us have gone in the baseball business, I think those of us uh, who also realize uh, how important family time and downtime is to really fully recharge your batteries, 
uh, we really relished most of it. Uh, you know, it's not easy for them. It's an adjustment to have me around an awful lot, and it's an adjustment for me to be around an awful lot because usually, as I said, every third day I'm jumping on an airplane to go do a baseball game someplace. But uh, I think we've come through it really well. We've uh, uh, we've had a lot of fun, a lot of good times. Uh, watching my boys grow up and, and, and uh, pursue their broadcasting careers uh, from afar has been great. And uh, my little guy, you know, those are those are opportunities and excitements and, and experiences that he and I will share for the rest of our lives. And for that, I'm grateful for this downtime. And Chip, as far as the as far as the travel, I know you guys are. It's amazing, just the same as the ball teams are, are concerned. Is there a possibility that uh, we get the deal done? Uh, is it a possibility you guys could be playing in November, like in Florida or Arizona? Some of the crazy scenarios I'm hearing that. Uh, could happen. Is there anything do you think that's more, I guess, feasible or more reasonable than those of us that are outside looking in? Yeah, uh, everything I've read and all the things that I'm hearing is that the, 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 the owners want to get the games in the big league ballparks. Uh, look, there are millions and millions of dollars that are at stake here for both sides uh, in this uh, negotiation. And make no mistake about it, when fans aren't in the ballparks, uh, baseball teams don't make as much money. They make a lot of money on Cokes and popcorns and beers and pennants and all that kind of stuff, parking uh, and the like. They're going to take a gigantic hit. Obviously, the players get paid per game. Uh, and I think the assumption was that, okay, if we play 82 games, we'll have fans in the stands. And the, the rub is that there aren't going to be fans in the stands to start. So uh, that means there's probably going to be a need to have more salary cuts, which the players are already balking at, which to a certain degree I can understand. Uh, ultimately, I think, though, that the choice is going to be, do you want to play and what price is worth it and at what is fair? And, and we've got to figure out what revenue is and, and can we make this work? Because uh, if for some reason in the economic climate we're dealing with as a country, the players and owners collectively don't read the room uh, with 16 percent unemployment, 33 million people uh, laid off and furloughed because of the virus, that millionaires and billionaires are fighting over over a lot of money would be an awful look not to mention the fact that we haven't had baseball on the field since last October. And if we don't play, uh, you would be facing a scenario of 18 months of no baseball on the field. And I don't know what professional sport in any country would be able to withstand serious long-term damage if that were to take place. So I think there's a huge financial incentive, obviously, to fight for what you think you are entitled to get and what you uh, can afford to pay. But also there's a higher purpose, which is the game and what it means and its long-term health and, and uh, uh, place in our society. Because if you, if you, if you mess this up, uh, we all remember what happened in 1994 and the start of 95. It took a long time for our game to come back, and none of us wants to see that happen. Yeah, I think you make a good point about the climate and so many people being unemployed. And you have uh, ball players who do make a good living, you know, bickering about uh, a million here or a million there. Yet it's not a good look. Well, and, and look, let's face it, the owners have billions and billions of dollars. Look, no, they, they, do, they do reap a financial reward when times are good. There's no question about that. But they take risk as well, uh, and the players are handsomely compensated. And I think that uh, at least my initial reading of what's going on, there will be two more playoff teams, expanded playoffs, which means more potential money for uh, the players and owners to split up come postseason time. But look, like I said, this is a situation where it's not time to point fingers and say you're right and we're wrong or, or vice versa. The time is what can we do to not let an economic uh, argument derail 
any public goodwill that we can generate from coming back. Look, the National Hockey League in 24 hours figured out a way to get 24 teams into a playoff pool and get going. The NBA is talking <laughs> about coming back uh, and playing a tournament in Orlando. It would be an absolute uh, crime on both sides, in my humble opinion, uh, if Major League Baseball, because of whatever acrimony and distrust that's existed 25, 26 years ago, continued on. Uh, look, we've had 25, 26 years of labor peace. This would be an awful time for uh, that very impressive run to uh, to be interrupted, and I'm confident that it won't be. Chip, one of my favorite things growing up um, with my dad, watch, watching the Cubs on WGN and watching uh, Harry Singh take me out to the ball game and, and all of his other commentary, and uh, obviously so so well-known and synonymous with Chicago sports and uh, and just the personality. I actually uh, I have a T-shirt, you know, the, the T-shirt that has the – has his um, glasses on him, and and sure. uh, so I have one of those. But um, so just talk about growing up um, with Harry as your grandfather, Skip as your dad, and just um, the things you learned from those guys. And um, I, I know you you were um, another story that I read on you. You were talking about the stories that Harry told you. I guess maybe or maybe it was actually your father just talking about Jackie Robinson and Stan Musial and, and different legends of the game. Yeah, well, uh, you know, going back to the Jeff Schultz article in the Athletic, uh, you know, and I, I, I don't really love rehashing this story because this is not a sympathy uh, sob story in any way, shape, or form. It's just a, a, ma- a way of, and a manner of getting my biography out. Uh, I didn't know my grandfather very well. My parents and grandparents were both divorced. My dad and mom split up when I was four or five years old. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. My dad was in Atlanta. My grandfather was in Chicago, and I never saw him. Uh, I didn't really see him until I was getting out of college and was getting ready to graduate and was interested in journalism and broadcasting. And once I got the Orlando Magic job, uh, he took a much greater interest in who I was and what I was about because it was a legacy thing for him. Uh, My grandfather grew up an orphan in St. Louis. He didn't know his parents. So he really wasn't equipped with the skills to be a family man as we would define that today. And again, I say that with no animosity, but the facts were facts. He was a professional entertainer, and he was a guy that was driven to be successful, and nothing was going to stand in his way. And he truly is the embodiment of the American dream. A penniless orphan kid who sold newspapers to survive ends up in the Baseball Hall of Fame as one of the most beloved broadcasters in baseball history. Um, My dad grew up in St. Louis as well, and all he wanted Harry to be was dad, and he was Harry. Uh, he was always on, and I think the lesson my dad learned there was balance. Uh, you know, my, my grandfather was a famous guy, but my dad just wanted him to be one of the guys, and that was very, very difficult for him. And So the lesson that I took from both of them was that baseball is a huge, gigantic part of my life and my family's life. Uh, it's given us everything, and I'm hoping that this year will continue to give us everything, but it's only a very small part of who we are as people, and I don't think my grandfather understood that until very late in his life. Uh, my dad understood that more and more as I got to come back to Atlanta and work with him and be his son and take him to lunch and have a cocktail with him on the road or get his suitcase from the lobby. All those little things that you know fathers and sons would would think as uh, you know just as commonplace as brushing your teeth. Uh, but he and I never had that until I was in my late 30s, and uh, I'm grateful that I got to work with him. I'm uh, I'm very sad that I didn't get to do that with my grandfather because, as you said, I would have loved nothing better than to sit in my grandfather's limousine on a ride from the airport and hear Jackie Robinson stories. And what was it like watching Stan Musial's at-bats at Sportsman's Park? And what were your thoughts when the Giants and Dodgers left New York for Brooklyn, for uh, San Francisco and Los Angeles, respectively? All of that stuff, uh, from a baseball standpoint, is lost to eternity. And 
the, the family history, obviously, of what it was like to grow up penniless in St. Louis and how did you get the Cardinals job and, you know, what was broadcasting like when you had three different stations doing the game, all that stuff uh, that, that we never will know because uh, he passed away shortly before he and I were to work together. So uh, I'm grateful for the legacy they've given me. I don't carry it lightly, but I'm the first to also say that I stand on the shoulders of giants and uh, I'm very, very grateful for the things they taught me. And I'm hoping to uh, pass along those uh, uh, lessons to my uh, 20-year-old sons who are also going to be broadcasters, I hope, as they begin to follow their own path. Chip, uh, you, you mentioned uh, he had passed right before you got to work with him. Uh, the, the plan was for you guys to work together in that 98 season, right? If, yeah. Thinking back, you know, I, yeah. I grew up like Bubba did watching WGN. So uh, yeah. I remember when you, uh, when you started calling games on uh, WGN. Yeah, the plan was for me to uh, to come to Chicago, and uh, my grandfather didn't want to travel much anymore. He would go to St. Louis, and he might go to New York, but he didn't want to do a whole lot of travel. I mean, 81 games at 80 years old or whatever the heck he was uh, was a really, really hard schedule for him. So the plan was I was going to do all the road games with Steve Stone, and I would do the middle three innings, the pregame and the postgame show uh, at Wrigley Field in Chicago. And it would have been a, a huge, huge help for me because, look, uh, anybody who understands Chicago sports knows there's a great rivalry between the Cubs and White Sox. Uh, right. The White Sox fans hate anything Cubs because they're the Cubs. The Cubs fans didn't really care too much about the White Sox because they weren't the Cubs. And so, uh, you know, my, my grandfather had a ton of friends and ton of supporters, but he also was a guy that was not afraid to make enemies. If he thought somebody treated him wrong, he would blast them. And there were a lot of people who took shots at me. Uh, because my grandfather took shots at them. Most of them came from the White Sox side of town. And that was hard for me to understand because, as I said before, I was and am my own person, and I wasn't trying to be the next Harry Carey. I was just trying to find a way to be uh, my first self. And luckily uh, for me, Arnie Harris, our late uh, great director and producer, took me under his wing. He worked with Lou Boudreau and Jack Brickhouse. Uh, and Steve Stone, uh, who is as great a partner as I've ever had. Yeah. They all took me under their wing and kind of shielded me from and taught me the ropes of and helped navigate the waters of the big city of Chicago. Look, I came from Orlando, Florida, where we had one beat writer and two TV stations that followed the team. I go to Chicago, and there's you know 30 reporters every single day uh, at the ballpark. And so wow. it, was truly, it truly was culture shock, uh, not to mention following a guy that was a Hall of Famer and beloved and was as big as uh, Mayor Daly was in Chicago, and that's saying something. So uh, I had a lot of people that helped me along the way. Yeah, I stepped on my toes quite a bit, but I was allowed the luxury of learning and learning on the fly. And ultimately, uh, in 98, the Cubs had a good team, which really eased my transition into the marketplace and I think set the stage for you know a very nice, successful seven, eight, nine-year run there. Yeah, and you, you step in there in 98 and everybody's watching – uh, Sosa, that Sosa versus McGuire for the, uh, yeah. you know, the home run titles. What was that like? I mean, all, all the, uh, all the coverage the Cubs were getting because of Sosa. It was crazy. Uh, you know, luckily I had some experience with big coverage in that in Orlando we had Shaquille O'Neal and Penny Hardaway and Horace Grant, those guys with the Orlando Magic, a team that went to the finals a couple of times while I was there, at least once. Um, so from that standpoint, that kind of uh, intrusive, all-encompassing, you know, fascination with everything going on was great. Uh, look, in '97, the Cubs had an awful year. They were not very good, and nobody expected much of them in '98. But Sammy Sosa blew up. They had Henry Rodriguez who hit uh, 20 home runs in the outfield. Uh, Kerry Wood had a 20 strikeout game. Uh, all of those things happened very, very early. 
uh, in the season, the Kerry Wood game especially. Um, and that was sort of my entree to, wow, uh, this is a big moment, arguably the greatest game ever pitched in baseball history, and it's like my 15th or 20th cup game, and Kerry Wood does this. Not to mention Sammy Sosa hitting 20 home runs in June, and then the great uh, race between Sosa and McGuire every day. It was it was really magical theater, and uh, people ask me all the time, is what we know now about 98 and some of those other years with big baseball sluggers in any way diminished? Uh, and for me, the answer is no. Uh, you know, maybe it's maybe I was naive, but I was still very much uh, you know romanticized by baseball and again its place in society and what those two guys meant for an entire region of our country great cardinal great cub rival you've got a kid from the dominican who grew up shining shoes and selling oranges to mark mcguire who you know wins the rookie of the year award and you know the all-american boy from california um they really really galvanized our country and made baseball cool again after the strike of 94 the strife that began in 1995 and i'll always go to my grave thinking that it was one of the most special and spectacular years, irrespective of what we know now, because of what they did, how they did it, and what it meant to the game. And uh, as you said, luckily I was there for a front row seat for 150 of those games or so. It was really interesting when you were talking about um, the games. Uh, one of the things I miss a lot, uh, I know it's a different era, uh, Chip, but with the super stations around the country, uh, with WTBS, WGN, WOR, different ones around mm-hmm. the country you could watch on the cable systems. And that's one of the reasons why um, I did, if I wanted to watch a Cubs game, I knew where to go. If I wanted to watch yeah. a Braves game, WTBS, I know it's a different era, but, man, it was really special, especially back yeah, in the great. 80s. Yeah, it's great. it was great because, the, you know, those superstations took you to markets where people never got to see baseball. Tomahawk, Wisconsin, Pocatello, Idaho. Oh, right. You know? <laughs> Uh, Walla Walla, Washington, uh, you know, all those places were pockets of huge baseball fans. And look, the economics are what they are. Uh, the Superstations had a huge advantage. They were on your cable bill and you didn't have to pay much more for them. While ESPN and FS1 and all these other channels had to pay gigantic rights fees to Major League Baseball to broadcast games nationally. And the, the Superstations had the option if they wanted to to continue broadcasting their games every day nationally. They just had to pay a national rights fee. Well, you know, you do the numbers, 160 games, uh, you know, those numbers get exponentially ridiculous, and, and it just wasn't going to be a workable thing. So, uh, unfortunately, uh, the, the days of the Superstation went bye-bye, but the regional sports networks offer the same kind of coverage. The games are on every day. It's just a different platform. Uh, unfortunately, we have these ridiculous blackout rules, which I think should go the way of the dodo. If you want to watch the Braves broadcast and you're living in Seattle, watch the Braves broadcast for crying out loud. You're paying your money. Uh, that's what you should be able to do. Uh, but that said, um, it's a different era. Uh, the coverage is just as good. I'd, I'd like to think the announcers are just as good, and hopefully 30 years from now you'll be talking about uh, Joe Simpson, Jeff Francoeur, Tom Glavin, and me in the same reverential way that people talk about my dad and grandfather. That's my hope, at least. Yeah, you mentioned that you kind of alluded to it. You mentioned the place like Walla Walla, Washington, et cetera. Here in the eastern part of North Carolina, you know, there's no baseball team in North Carolina. The the, the Orioles are supposed to be our, our region. You know, they're supposed to be our, our, our home team. But, you know, nobody really grows up an Orioles fan here, even though that's our regional sports team. They were always syndicated around here. So you kind of got to choose your team, and uh, it, most people either chose uh, the Cubs or the Braves. Yeah, well, and it's going to be interesting to see what the model is for baseball going forward. I'm sure at some point uh, there will be a way where the teams all end up doing the broadcast themselves, and 
I don't know if the uh, the regional sports network model will continue to survive 20 or 30 years down the road. I know it's extremely lucrative, and they make a lot of money, and they bring in a ton of money, and they broadcast a lot of sports and do it exceptionally well. Uh, but ultimately, it's about fans and choice, and that's where I say the blackout rules. While I understand the principle, we want to protect all of the franchises equally. Uh, it was kind of like uh, owners would get mad when the Braves would go to Houston, and they played in the Astrodome. You have 30,000 people, and 19 or 20,000 of them are Braves fans waving tomahawks. And the owner of the Astros would get mad, saying, why are all these Braves fans here? Well, the Superstation. And the owner would forget, well, all those Braves fans are buying Houston Astros tickets and eating Houston Astros hot dogs and Cokes and popcorn and drinking Houston Astros beer. And if ultimately the, the goal is to get fans in the stands and have them enjoy and fall in love with the game, it wouldn't seem to me to matter who your broadcast carrier is, but uh, again, that's a that's a, a long uh, a long gone thought and a long gone time. I don't know if we'll ever see it again, quite frankly. Chip, have you have you had a chance to to ever meet? And to, I'm sure you have. Uh, have you had a chance to 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 talk to Will Farrell much and get him to do his his impression of your grandfather uh, in front of you? Ironically, I have not, but my wife and daughter have. Um, we were in New York doing a Mets game, and my wife and daughter were spending the day or spending the weekend with me up in New York. And my daughter was ten, eleven, twelve years old at the time. And uh, my wife and daughter were walking around downtown uh, New York, and they saw the, the film set. And there was a crowd of people standing around. And my daughter ran up just to see what was going on because, like you know, all kids that age, she was interested in acting and actors and all that cool stuff. And she saw it was Will Ferrell. She said, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. So she stands in line getting ready to get an autograph. And Will Ferrell walks up and says, hello, pretty lady. What's your name? She said, well, my name is Summerlin, and you know my, my great-grandfather. He said, I do. Who is it? And she said, well, my great-grandfather is Harry Carey. And she said, no way. And my wife walked up and said, is this your mom? She said, yeah. Uh, I'm Will Ferrell. It's my wife, Susan. Uh, yeah, Harry Carey is uh, my my grandfather-in-law, and he was he was just he just couldn't believe it. And he, the first thing he asked was, "Well, how do you like the impression?" <laughs> and my my twin sons, who were eight or nine years old at the time, obviously loved it. Uh, I think it's hilarious. Uh, I, I I truly believe that imitation is a serious form of flattery. And uh, you know, my dad at the time sometimes got upset because he thought Will was making fun of my grandfather, um, and he was in a way. But uh, Will Ferrell at the end of his career, uh, or excuse me, Harry Carey at the end of his career, was that comic kind of funny, goofy character. In his early days in St. Louis, he was like Bob Costas and Joe Buck combined. So uh, it was all done, I think, in the spirit of love and appreciation and homage. And Quite frankly, Will Ferrell, who grew up in Merritt Island, Florida, down near the Space Coast, that's how he got his start, was doing Harry Carey impersonations. And it's obviously served him well. And uh, his is a great one. Ryan Dempster's is a really good one. Uh, Derek Holland of the Giants apparently has a really good one, too. And uh, it's just a cool way to sort of keep his memory alive and, and keep the spirit of fun at the old ballpark alive. And, and quite frankly, I'm flattered by it. So, Chip, we've talked about your time with the Cubs. We've touched a little on your time with the Braves. But talk about the, the opportunity to come back to Atlanta from a professional standpoint, uh, the Braves, obviously, the team of the 90s, um, mm-hmm. managed just that one World Series title in 95. But then um, from, I guess, what, 1990 or 1991 to 2005, a, a ridiculous 15 straight division titles. And uh, and you were coming in as, as that run was ending. So just talk about that and the opportunity to work with the um, Braves legend like Bobby Cox, Leo Mazzoni, and some, some of sure. those guys. Yeah, I, look, I never thought I would leave the Cubs, to be honest with you. Uh, I had the opportunity to stay there. Uh, they made a, a real low-ball offer for me to return, and under the terms of the contract I signed, uh, they had an exclusive window to negotiate my contract. They let that lapse, uh, and then 
had the option to match anything else that I got. Uh, there were a couple of other teams that, that had expressed interest in my work, and the Braves were one of them, and the Cubs just Cubs decided for whatever reason not to match the offer. Uh, I was extremely disappointed by that on one hand because I really loved Chicago. I loved being with the Cubs, and uh, you know, with a young family going to the ballpark at 9 o'clock in the morning and being home at 5 o'clock, you had a regular life in a remarkably cool city, um, but it just wasn't meant to be. And I don't look at the Braves as a backup plan because, as you said, uh, uh, the opportunity to come back home, as it were, where I started in 91, uh, to work with my dad and Pete and Bobby Cox and Leo Mazzoni and John Schroltz, all the people that were there 14 years later, which is unbelievable to think about, uh, made it a very seamless and easy transition for me because I knew what to expect. Hell, a lot of the players were still there yeah. uh, at the time. Um, so from that standpoint, it was great. It really was a, a wonderful opportunity for me to, as you said, rekindle my relationship with my dad. Uh, the Braves trained in Orlando where we lived at the time, so it was an easy commute. Uh, Orlando to Atlanta is a 45, 50-minute flight, so you know I could get home a little more frequently. Uh, so from a personal and professional standpoint, uh, it's been nothing but, but uh, fantastic. Um, I, you know, I try to look forward, not look back. And, uh, again, I'm grateful to uh, everything Chicago and the Cubs and their fans and that organization did for me and my family, grandfather included. And I'm still eternally grateful for the Braves bringing me back uh, and uh, TBS and now Fox Sports South for giving me an opportunity to, to broadcast uh, games for another great, fantastic set of fans and a franchise that has a long and storied history just like the Cubs. Absolutely. Uh, a very quick follow-up point. Um, recently, we had a guy on the show named Josh Rudd, and he had developed a relationship with a, a guy named Caleb Davis, who's a pitching coach um, down at Furman, who unfortunately had to drop their baseball program. But uh, Caleb had gotten to know Coach Mazzoni very well, and um, he has an excellent series on YouTube. Um, I think part three just came out, learning from Leo with some tremendous stories, like behind-the-scenes stuff um, with from him talking or, or coaching the big three, and then also guys like Marvin Freeman and other ones that were just household names, Mike Stanton, and uh, mm -hmm. just some of the behind-the-scenes things that the, the, the passionate fans like myself really enjoy. Yeah, you know, Leo, the great thing about Leo was if you didn't want an opinion, don't ask for one because he'll tell you exactly what he thinks and you may not like it. Uh, but all he cared about was winning and all he cared about was making guys better. Uh, he learned under Johnny Sane, who was another great pitching coach, a fantastic pitcher, as you know, in the major leagues. Uh, but Leo was no nonsense. Uh, you know, the down always strike, strike one, uh, and you don't have to throw hard. You just have to hit spots, and uh, that sort of is lost in today's game, in my humble opinion, and that's uh, what made that Braves team so great. You had John Smoltz, who could throw the ball 97 miles an hour, but until he learned how to control it, he was getting his brains beaten out. Uh, Tom Glavin struggled in his early days, uh, figured it out, started throwing strikes. Obviously, you got Greg Maddox coming off a Cy Young year and came to Atlanta and won three more of them uh, with, with the Braves. Uh, and then guys like Kent Merker and Steve Avery and Marvin Freeman you mentioned. And then it was the Chris Hammonds of the world, the Mike Rimlingers of the world, the Greg McMichaels of the world, uh, the Kevin Grabowskis of the world, who weren't exactly household names, but all played big roles in very, very good teams because uh, they learned their lessons well from Leo Mazzoni and Bobby Cox. So, uh, you know, Leo's a character. He's a great guy. Um, he's a different cat. But once you get to know him and understand, all he cares about is winning and getting the best out of his players. Uh, he's very, very easy to understand. And, uh, uh, you know, everybody in Braves country ought to be very grateful for the contributions he made for sure. Obviously, baseball is where your 
understandably associated with um, because that's where you've essentially made your living. But like you, you referenced early on, you uh, had that opportunity um, shortly out of Georgia to um, to work with the, the TV team there with the, the new expansion team, the Orlando Magic, in 1989. But in addition to that, uh, you've had the opportunity to do some college football. So um, what are some memories that you have from those other ventures? Well, with with basketball, uh, the first venture would be I was 24 years old in 1989, and uh, Pat Williams hired me when no one else probably would have. Uh, I was woefully inexperienced, but he took a chance on me and let me learn on the job. Uh, look, I was 24 years old. I was making, I think, $40,000 as the youngest and lowest paid NBA announcer for an expansion team in Orlando. And, uh, you know, the team won 15 games that year, and I was worse than the team. Uh, you know, if there was YouTube and Instagram or whatever, I probably would be shell, uh, selling Buicks right now. Uh, but luckily, as I said, I was given the opportunity to learn and grow and make mistakes in, in, in real time. And I had a great partner in Jack Givens and a great TV crew and understanding and patient people who knew we were all growing together as a franchise. And, you know, when you're the first guy there, that was kind of cool to, to take those baby steps and learn from your mistakes along the way. And uh, as bad as the team was in the early days, they struck gold with Shaquille O'Neal and then Chris Weber, who was traded for Penny Hardaway. And they brought in Horace Grant and Nick Anderson and Dennis Scott. I mean, they had a really, really good, fun, engaging NBA team uh, that packed the arena every night. And it was uh, it was exciting. It was fun to be a part of that. And to be, uh, you know, roughly the same age as most of the players was uh, was a real thrill. Now I'm an old man. I'm old enough to be their dads in most cases. So my perception of the sport and the games and the players are a little bit different these days. But uh, it was the time of my life. I mean, I, I came of age, so to speak, as a broadcaster doing the NBA. But as you said, and rightfully so, my heart was always in baseball. And as soon as an opportunity to become a full-time baseball guy came, uh, I, I seized it, and I, and I don't miss that or, or regret that in any way, shape, or form. But like I said, of Chicago, I'm always grateful to Orlando. That's where all of my kids were born. In many ways, that'll be a second hometown for me. And uh, frankly, I've lived in Florida more than I've lived anywhere else in my life. So I'm a, a true a true Florida man now, and uh, Orlando was a real big part of that. Now, Chip, I also wanted to ask you, uh, I know, like I just mentioned, uh, you were a University of Georgia alum and a product of their school of broadcasting journalism. And, and I know your wife, uh, she's a Clemson grad, if I'm not mistaken. So just talk about here in recent years, uh, obviously the Bulldogs have been uh, in the playoff multiple times and right there contending for national championship some. And then Clemson, we know what they've done. So talk about you know, how you follow the Bulldogs and Coach Kirby Smart's program, just the university as a whole. Well, we don't talk a lot of college football in our house only because uh, things haven't gone so well from my side as I would like. Yeah, she's a passionate Clemson uh, fan. My wife was the first freshman cheerleader in the history of the Clemson football program, Clemson program years and years ago. And, you know, uh, loves the program. Still, we still have great friends up there. Charles Usry owns the SO Club. a good buddy of ours. Uh, so if I'm not cheering for the Bulldogs, I am cheering for Clemson. I still can't believe they let... Uh, uh, Deshaun Watson and Trevor Lawrence escaped from uh, Athens, Georgia, and not come to the University of Georgia. That's another story, though. Uh, but, look, uh, I'm proud of my university. I love Georgia. It was a place that was instrumental in my growth as a person. Forget the broadcasting part of it. Uh, you know, I live in Florida, so I really care about one game a year, and that's beating the Gators, which uh, for the last three years has, has gone our way. Uh, but I, I really believe that Clemson's going to have a great football team this year. Uh, I think Georgia's going to have a very interesting and exciting squad with a new quarterback. Um, and, uh, look, our dream for our family would be to have a Georgia-Clemson uh, national championship matchup, and I wish there was a way they'd play each other once a year. I, I don't think that that'll work out, but 
Um, you know, love the Tigers when they're not playing the Bulldogs, and she tolerates the Bulldogs even if they're not playing the Tigers. That's kind of the way things work in our <laughs> house when it comes to college football, which is understandable. Yeah, you, you mentioned new quarterback Jamie Newman coming in from Wake Forest and also a new offense coordinator in Todd Munkin um, trying to open things up a bit, uh, maybe kind of like Nick Saban did at Alabama when he brought in Lane Kiffin uh, a few years ago. Yeah. So, uh, so it's yeah, going to be interesting to see how that goes. Yeah, very much so. I mean, my twin sons are at Georgia now, and uh, yeah, they're both in the broadcasting school, the Grady uh, College of Journalism now, and uh, hopefully they'll be able to interview some of those guys and, and be around them and, and give me the first-hand blow-by-blow accounts of all the games. I don't get up there too often just because it's you know a little bit uh, ways away from home and the baseball schedule overlaps an awful lot. But, look, uh, any of those programs that have done it right, like Georgia, like Kirby, like Kirby Smart is doing, like Dabo Swinney's done at Clemson, you can't help but root for them as people as well as uh, football coaches. And, uh, uh, look, I'm biased. I want the dogs to win every game they play. But if they can't, I, I, I'm really happy for the folks in Clemson. They they have a program that's, uh, uh, you know, the envy of a lot of people in the country for a lot of good reasons. And if the old saying good things happen to good people is true, well, you can't help but be happy for Dabo and his staff. They've done a remarkable job the last several years for sure. I'm going to make a bold prediction here before we let you go. I'm a big fan of uh, of Todd Munkin. Uh, know, know, know his offense well from when he was a Southern Miss. Uh, that was a big time hire by, uh, by, by, by the dogs. Uh, and, uh, that, that's going to take Kirby Smart's, uh, program to the next level. Uh, I'll predict they'll win a national championship in the next three years. Well, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. Uh, you know, look, as I said, uh, I, I believe, uh, that there's a higher purpose, in my opinion, to uh, to college athletics and just winning national championships. And that, as I said, running the program right, getting kids to graduate, the ones that want to, uh, keeping them out of trouble off the field, having them represent uh, your your city, your school, their families, uh, the red and black in our case, um, uh, exceptionally well, I think, is a, a hallmark of a good program. And as I said, Dabo does that well with Clemson. The dog people are doing it well in Athens, Georgia, and to me that's the most important thing. Absolutely. Well, Chip, we certainly appreciate your time. You've been very generous, and um, we'd definitely love to have you back on sometime down the road. Maybe next time we can um, do it on the Facebook Live and YouTube Live platform. That'd be great. Uh, we got to get baseball back so we can get a haircut. Right now I look like a Yeti, so I'm glad we can see video <laughs> chat. That'd be a little bit scary. But uh, appreciate you guys having me on. Good luck, and we'll see the ballpark soon, we hope. Thanks so much to Chip Carey for being so generous with his time and sharing three-plus decades of broadcasting experience with us. We definitely would like to have Chip back on the program sometime down the road, and um, hopefully next time we will actually have some baseball being played. Before we wrap up episode 314 of the Sports Objective, I just want to commend the effort by the ECU swimming and diving programs to have their programs brought back. Of course, the university's decision was announced one week ago today, last Thursday, May 21st, over the last four-plus days, a petition has been signed with nearly 17,000 signatures and additionally more than $342,000 have been pledged. Uh, this is certainly very impressive, but it also leads me to this, and this is not directed at the passionate supporters of the East Carolina swimming and diving programs by any means. What I'm about to say is directed at all Pirate supporters, whether the person is an alum, a former athlete, of any sport or, or just simply an East Carolina fan. Maybe you didn't even go to ECU. Um, but we must, and I repeat, we must operate with this type of passion and sense of urgency moving forward so we can do everything we can to set up our athletics program and our Pirates for success. 
Um, when you graduate from East Carolina, you can immediately sign up for the Pirate Club during your first year out of ECU for free. All you have to do is simply sign up and you can get your membership at the $250 level. And that is, of course, the second giving level of the Pirate Club. Uh, you can go online to the ecupirateclub.com. Again, that's just www.ecupirateclub.com. And, um, and you can sign up if you're a young grad. Um, so that first year out of school is totally free to sign up for the Pirate Club. Uh, that second year at, out of ECU, uh, you would be able to join for just $50 uh, while at the same time being treated as a $250 donor. So folks, that's just over, you can do the math, $4 per month. Um, so if you're passionate about the Pirates, uh, it's definitely uh, what we need to get more of our more of our alums doing as soon as they leave East Carolina in terms of um, just uh, graduating and moving on uh, with, with their professional lives. Um, anyone, regardless of whether they're young grad or not, uh, you can join for as little as $100. And so you think about it, that's essentially one fast food combo a month. So just for just under eight and a half bucks a month, you can join the Pirate Club and be a part of the answer for ECU Athletics. So we hear One Pirate Nation being preached by our leadership. Hashtag One Pirate Nation on Twitter and Facebook. It's, it's way past time that we put that into practice. And um, I know a lot of you that may be listening to this show, uh, I'm kind of preaching to the choir. But uh, if I'm not talking about you, if, if you are already um, donating to the Pirate Club, we certainly appreciate it. Um, but if you know someone that falls into that category of someone who loves the Pirates, but they're not a Pirate Club member, definitely reach out to them or uh, let me know. And um, I would certainly be able to uh, love to reach out to them and uh, see if we could get them signed up to be a part of the answer and uh, be part of Pirates, supporting Pirates with the ECU Pirate Club. So um, I'll get off my soapbox now, but I just felt compelled to say that as we're wrapping up this episode. Um, if you love the Pirates and your financial situation allows, uh, we certainly need your contributions now more than ever to move this ship forward. Remember, we're giving away two East Carolina football season tickets. Check out our pinned tweet. Uh, just go to at the sports OBJ on Twitter and uh, you'll see the details as far as how to put your name into the hat. Uh, you can do so as many as four times. And if you're more of a Facebook person, um, certainly go there as well and just search the sports objective, like and follow our page. Um, and then you can share our pinned post there. Um, it details the ways in which you can enter the contest. And this contest will go on through the month of June, um, ending on June the 30th as it stands right now. As always, we appreciate you tuning in. Uh, love all our listeners. And uh, for my absent co-hosts, Kyle from the Grange Barber and Dave Richmond, I'm Bubba Rosenbaum, and you have been listening to the Sports Objective Podcast. You've been listening to the Sports Objective Podcast. Join us next time as the guys will be objective, and the objective is sports.